0: Anybody have any nuts and bolts about the course? I'll just mention that Michelle was getting new people in the mailing list and then a lot of those emails got lost. So I brought my computer here. But you don't need to be on the mailing list because anybody who knows the address of the website can get to the current information that's there. It's just buddhiststudies.org commongroundmeditation.org, and you'll get uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's, the link to Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Eightfold Path, which is the main resource, but I'll, I'll give out other articles, and then if, hopefully some of you will have good articles, too. And remember, for this course, this seven-week course, last week and tonight, we'll be talking about the first part of the Eightfold Path, which is... The general category is wisdom, which includes right view and right intentions. I'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. And then the rest of the course, the last five weeks, we'll spend looking at the middle section of the Eightfold Path, although it's not really linear, but at least that's how it's taught in this linear form. We have right speech, right action, right livelihood. So it's really nice. It's actually a great counterweight to having spent the, wis- the winter looking at anatta, the teachings on emptiness, the not self, impersonal nature. And then, uh, you know, grounding in the reality of, you know, living in community, living with each other, relating, and, uh, recognizing the very real significance of that of those relationships that just because this is all nature unfolding here doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we're showing up in the world with each other, the community at large, how we're holding, relating to all of this. And that's the great, this is why it's such a I mean just on a conceptual level, it's so wonderful that there's no easy out Practice. It's not this this simple transcendence like getting out of the muck of the world, going off to some peaceful place in the wilderness or locked into our house somewhere. The freedom, the liberation the Buddha taught is a liberation that can manifest right in the middle, engagement being engaged right in the middle of this messy world this imperfect world that's actually how uh, you know that's the only way to assess the practice is to notice in the messiness of life whether the mind is neurotically creating stress and suffering or not So any uh, nuts and bolts about the course that we should bring up? If you have, if you've discovered some uh, teachings from some of our contemporary teachers on right speech, right livelihood, right action, the sila, the ethical conduct or the practices of integrity uh, from a Buddhist context that you think would be really relevant to other people in the course, send them to me. And if it looks right, well... I'll put them up on the web page for other people to dig into. There's a lot of good stuff out there. So the Eightfold Path is an interesting model. And uh, most of you, maybe all of you, know that the framework, that, that teaching on the Eightfold Path arises is within the, the four, four noble truths. So the Buddha, as somebody who spent time and had the particular mental qualities that allowed him to do a good job at looking at his own mind, he understood the relevance that of you know the experience of dukkha, that there is mental stress, there's a cause, It does cease and understanding the experience of cessation, understanding the experience of the heart, free of all clinging, then reveals or allows the eightfold path, allows the path to arise. And then the Buddha articulated that because, of course, the path, isn't the same as the articulation of the path, you know, these eight eight steps. It's something that a person experiencing moments of a mind unencumbered by clinging, grasping neurotic activity, then that mind in those moments understands how to be. And then if that person also has the skill being able to articulate what they directly experience, like how to be, how to be a sensitive, engaged, responsive human being, then they might articulate it like the Buddha did. In some fashion, that looks a lot like the Eightfold Path. Some of you know, I don't think I mentioned this story at the end of the Buddha's life. Literally, he was there on his deathbed Did I tell you the story of Subhadra, I think is his name? So the Buddha's there on his deathbed, having evidently eaten some bad food, and uh, he put off the sickness as long as he could, and then finding a suitable place, he laid down and dying, basically, and uh, a seeker shows up. So it's nighttime, there are a few close students gathered around the Buddha, monks, nuns, lay people, and this strange ascetic shows up, seeker shows up, and he had, I don't know how he found out or wh- whether he was psychic, but he, he knew that this person, the Buddha, this awakened being, that one, it's not so often you run into an awake person, and two, he, had, he knew that he was going to die. So he wanted to ask him some questions. And Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, said, this is not the time. And, uh, But the Buddha overheard that and said, no, Ananda, it's okay, this won't take long. And so he came to the Buddha and he asked this question, one that comes up a couple times in the discourses at least, um, where he's saying, you know, a lot of, I've, I've come across a lot of teachers and they all claim to know the way. And I'm wondering if they're awake or not awake. And how do I tell? And uh, the Buddha says, don't ask that question. Let me teach you the Dharma. And uh, so the Buddha tells them that, I mean, a very short teaching, says, basically, this is a rough paraphrase, outside of the Eightfold Path, if someone claims to have awakening, you know, the culmination of full wisdom, without the Eightfold Path, it's not it's not the case. Wherever you find the Eightfold Path, you will find people with deep wisdom. Wherever you don't find it, you're not going to find people with deep wisdom. And it can sound a little fundamentalist when you hear a teaching like this, but I think the important thing is to to See the Eightfold Path not in terms of this particular articulation or arriving from this particular person. The Buddha was very clear about this. The image he used in another talk is um, it's as if he discovered an ancient city, an ancient civilization, I think he said, that had been grown over. You know, it doesn't take long for something to grow over, especially in the tropics. There was a news report recently on Chernobyl, the place where there's this terrible nu- nuclear accident uh, many decades ago, maybe in the 80s. I forget exactly when that happened. And, uh, and how everything's grown over. I mean, there are a few places where people still show up and to check on things, but basically that whole, I don't know how many square miles it is, but it's a huge area, is just sealed off. And even though it's only been 30 years, whatever, or so it's like really gone back. It's like this, one of the biggest nature preserves, ironically, in Europe. Um, so the Buddha uses this image of some great civilization that had one time been grand and really well planned out with beautiful boulevards and parks and, you know, like uh, some of our cities are. You know, that was thoughtful, how it all got laid out. And it's pleasant, you know, it's pleasant in an orderly way. And the Buddha said it was as if he came upon this ancient city, completely grown over. And then he he likened his uh, work at articulating what he had come to understand as cleaning the roads up, you know, rebuilding and making it a very beautiful, orderly place. So this articulation, not just of the Eightfold Path, but all the components, you know, through his 45 years of teaching, it's basically rebuilding something that had been discovered many, many, many times before. It's not the Buddhist path, you know. What we call it, I mean, we may say that from time to time, because it's a little bit more... uh, it makes a little bit more sense than to use the word like the Dharma because that seems abstract. But that's what the Buddha, it's like it's the way it is. This ancient city, it's like that articulation of it is, is that beautiful, grand, noble articulation. It's grand and beautiful precisely because of its alignment with the way it is not because it belongs to some sacred tradition or it's Buddhist or something like that, but because it represents, it's an articulation of the way it is. And, you know, within the Buddhist cosmology, there are many Buddhas who did the same thing, but each of them articulated the path slightly differently based on their own inclinations, their own personalities, their artic- and their own experience. Their particular articulation will be, you know, this way or that way, in the same way that different teachers, with you know a similar degree of understanding or insight, but they're not necessarily going to talk about the path. This is one of the can be one of the most discouraging things. Um, the more you dig into the practice and either study with different teachers or read the teachings of different teachers, and you realize that their articulation of seemingly really important things like nibbana freedom can be you know, really different. And it's like, well, how can that be? And certainly the way they talk about how to practice can be very different. It'd be very easy to get confused, especially these days where we can be in touch with, you know, two. I think it would be pretty easy, even within our own tradition, you know, coming out of Theravada Buddhism and the Pali Canon, this collection of teachings of the Buddha, and teachers that are sort of basing their teachings on these this this collection of teachings of the Buddha, you know, you could find two hundred teachers talking about their experience with these teachings. It's like, well who's right? So the Buddha says, well, if they're talking about this eightfold path so this is a nice thing about being tethered with the teachings of the Buddha. Now, there's no guarantee that the Buddha knew what he was talking about, but enough people like myself and a number of you in the room, we've been checking out the teachings, the Buddha's articulation of the teachings for a while now. And lo and behold, we find that the articulation lines up with our actual experience. And that, not we don't know everything. Like everything the Buddha said, I haven't seen it align yet with my experience. I'm looking forward to that (laughs) time, (laughs) but it's not the case yet. But a lot has, and so that that's really inspiring. Like oh, you know, I've been brought to tears sometimes just seeing how, in my experience, it lines up so beautifully with what my teachers and what the Buddha has said. It's like whoa. It, it, uh, it's that deep sense of having found a path that's uh, real, like it delivers. It is in alignment with our actual experience. So the Buddha's response to the seeker right before he died, and then of course he ordained and soon was a, an awaken, another one of the awakened ones, was very simple if you do this if you understand the path and that's really for this seven week course and then the one in the summer we'll be looking at this path we're looking at the articulation of the path and seeing if we can get a sympathetic resonance with what how we understand our own experience that's how we know the articulation is useful because when we pick it up as a set of teachings and we study it and memorize it to some degree and reflect on it, something comes alive. It like uh, lines up with our experience. It's almost, it has a, a particular surprising power. Because it's like uh, maybe you've noticed it tonight in very simple ways, so don't, It's easy to sort of dismiss it because it sounds like Mark's talking about something magical. But even something as simple as when I mentioned during the sit about noticing the intention of renunciation, the intention of setting things down. The mind doesn't need to do that now. It's really okay to put that down. And and noticing the joy, the rightness of that intention of renunciation, of putting things down. So you just hear that. You know? And you, the mind picks up that piece of the path, that particular teaching, and just plays with it a little bit. Like, remembers the word, even on that level, renunciation, letting go. And then reflects like, well, is there anything that this heart in this moment would be willing to set down? And then you might notice how. Natural that is, how like a groove, like there's an ancient path that might be a little dusty or a little overgrown, but is just, in a sense, waiting to put the load down or waiting to open up and relate with kindness to include, to say, yes, yes, this too. This too belongs because it's here already. So, yes. I relax with this. I allow this. I'm willing to be intimate or close. I'm willing to be touched by the experiences that are already arriving in the moment, fearlessly. And we feel a certain resonance like, oh yeah. Because to the degree that we recognize these elements of the path, to that degree we get the taste of liberation, the taste of freedom. They're freeing. We become more free as we recognize and align with these different elements. I'm not kidding. If you... (laughs) Like at the back of the book, you know, there's some just simple lists of the eight steps. Or you can just think about them in the three categories of wisdom, ethical conduct, and then mental development, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, these are the three areas. The last one's called Samadhi. The middle one's called Sila. first one's called Panya or Wisdom. So we have these three categories or the eight steps instead of the three categories. So whatever level of sophistication or subtlety you want to memorize it. But then you just uh, like just let it be there as you live your life. Like, like understanding... The practice of integrity, this will be a big thing for the next several weeks, right speech, right action, right livelihood, not as some weight, but as a, a way of aligning, a way of living our life that's liberating. So don't fall into the some old view uh, of like this terrible mountain that we have to climb, so hard, such a bummer. But we have to do it because we want to be good and uh, want other people to know we're good. So we become Buddhists or, you know, Christians or Jewish or and we're devout and we're going to, because that, that old plan, you know, that's that basic uh, view that you don't get anywhere without pain, you know, no pain, no gain. I'm not saying that life is easy, and I'm not saying that there isn't real difficulty in life, but the path is liberating. This is a liberating path. It's a path of happiness. It's not a, ha- it's not a path of difficulty. There is difficulty in life. I mean, obviously, pain arises, mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain. Pain does arise. Pain is painful, <laughs> It's true, but do we, are we interested enough that there's, in the midst of this life that delivers pain and delivers pleasure in different doses at different times, are we interested in a path that claims to be liberating regardless of whether life is delivering pain or pleasure right now? life is just going to do what it does you know depending on, on all the different things at play in the moment it will either be pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere in between but are we interested in this possibility of liberation so a heart or mind that is free of the play of life the ups and downs of life that's what the buddha sets out for us or offers us, you know, this path of freedom. And, of course, as I mentioned briefly last week, there's both a mundane and what's called sometimes or translated as super-mundane path. And it's true for each of these or for most of these elements of the Eightfold Path. Like, I think last week I talked about, you know, just on a mundane level, right view right intention, it's just about like managing our life more skillfully. Just on a functional level, what view is actually more functional, causes less problems, is more supportive. What kinds of intentions are more functional, more supportive in life? It's like, uh, you know, we could go through our life Trying to be happy in the same way that we could go through our life trying to be wealthy or have a lot of people like us. And we might be, we may get pretty good at it after a while, like making people like us or making money, having a lot of financial security or having a lot of wholesome intentions in the mind. So, on a more subtle level, that would be a more effective way to be happy by just always finding some wholesome intention to abide in. But in a more profound way, if we find an intention, the intention not to be identified with intentions. So this is a, in the direction of super mundane. So it's all about karma. Initially karma we understand from a self point of view. I'm somebody who wants to master cause and effect in order to set a motion of good life for myself and those I care about but even that feels problematic after a while like having to be the person who always has to be managing the world of karma of cause and effect that itself is a burden so the mind the heart naturally wonders well how about this intention to be free of the fruits of karma. There's still karma, there's still cause and effect, but I'm going to experiment. I'm going to experiment with the intention of not clinging to what comes my way. Things will come my way still, but I'm not going to cling. I'll just respond appropriately to what does come my way. In other words, you know, like it's a cliche, but it's there's some real wisdom behind it, you know, to say yes. Well, now it's like this. This is what's showing up. It may be what I want. It may be what I don't want. But it's very clearly showing up in my life right now. So I say yes. So here's the, the basic, just for the first... Uh, Two sections of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha, the Buddha's description. He says, Practitioners, what is noble? What is the Noble Eightfold Path? Right view, right resolve or intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And what is right view? Knowledge with regard to stress knowledge with regard to the origination of stress, knowledge with regard to the cessation of stress, knowledge with regard to the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. This is called right view. So that's just a different translation of the Four Noble Truths. And what is right resolve or right intention? Being resolved on renunciation, on letting go, letting things be. Being resolved on freedom from ill will, or loving-kindness. Being resolved on harmlessness or compassion. This is called right resolve. And what is right speech? Abstaining from lying, from divisive speech, from abusive speech, from idle chatter. This is called right speech. And what is right action? Abstaining from taking life, from stealing, from sexual activity or sexual misconduct. This is called right action. And what is right livelihood? There is the case where a noble practitioner having abandoned dishonest livelihood keeps one's life going with right livelihood. This is called right livelihood. And the Buddha is more explicit in other places of the talks. (coughs) Another good resource that you might, for those who want a little bit more study material that you could pick up, is Bhante Gunaratana's book, Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. So it's his book on the Eightfold Path. Bhante Gunaratana is a well-known Sri Lankan monk and longtime teacher here in the States. I think he was the chaplain at American University in Washington, D.C. for a number of years. He's pretty old now, in his mid-80s. And he started a monastery in West Virginia a couple hours outside of Washington, D.C. And... Uh, Bhavana Society. He's written a couple of wonderful books, including Mindfulness in Plain English, which is a, one of those classic beginning... I mean, it's, it's more than just a book for beginners, but it's a really useful book about mindfulness practice. But his book, Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness, is explicitly about the Eightfold Path. And then he's talking now generally about the path. So this is his translation. Step one. Well, let me read his opening sentence. The Buddha's fourth truth is the path that leads to the end of dissatisfaction. Is the path that leads to the end of dissatisfaction. It's eight steps. Bring peace and happiness to those who follow them. Step one. Skillful understanding of the Buddhist message requires that we understand skillful behavior in terms of cause and effect, the understanding of karma, and the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering, there's a cause, there's cessation of that suffering, and there's a path, and how they fit into the overall scheme of the Buddhist teachings. That's right view. Step two. Skillful thinking introduces us to the three positive thoughts. Generosity or letting go, loving, friendliness, and compassion. Step three, skillful speech explains how telling the truth and avoiding malicious talk, harsh language, and gossip can help us advance on the path. Step four, skillful action lays out the principles for leading an ethical life, especially abstaining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, And intoxication. Step five, skillful livelihood explains why choosing an appropriate job or profession is important to the to our spiritual practice and how we should avoid, we should approach questions of business ethics. And then step six, which we'll talk about in the summer, skillful effort lays out the four steps we can take to motivate our practice, preventing negative states of mind. Overcoming negative states of mind, cultivating positive states of mind, maintaining positive states of mind. Step seven, skillful mindfulness refers to the practice of mindfulness meditation, specifically cultivating mindfulness of your body, feelings, mind, and thoughts. And step eight, skillful concentration refers to the four stages of deep absorption or concentration. <clears throat> I tried to mention in the guided sit tonight how anytime, like, uh, to think about this path, not, I mean, it's useful to study it in a linear way. Having wisdom allows us to begin to engage the world of ethics, to be a little bit more skillful in how we relate to each other in terms of our speech, our actions, our livelihood. The stability, the harmony we get from dealing with this level of uh, transgress- transgressive habits, you know, where we transgress on others, we act out our defilements in ways that cause harm to others. When we get that in order, then there's more harmony, things settle down, and it's really easy to develop, to take care of the obsessive tendencies of our mind and really stabilize, calm, balance the mind. And we get what we call mental happiness. So first, we're well not necessarily first, but you know, we need enough sense of what's right and wrong, what's wholesome, begin to know what to do in terms of our actions in the world. And then our actions in the world coming into harmony allows us to work on the more subtle level of the obsessive tendencies of our mind. And we get pretty good at that, and that gets more tranquil, more calm. And then the calmness, the stability of the attention, the balance of mind, allows us to look at the views that the mind gets caught in or that the mind gets established in and the relative skillfulness and unskillfulness of the different points of view, the different perspectives. And that allows the mind to purify the view, which leads to a deeper piece of less clinging from views that require that have a lot of attachment in them to views that have less attachment in them. And then that's purification of view allows us to be much more skillful in our relationships, so we purify our ethical conduct more. And that stability, that harmony in our relationships with the world out, out there, allows us to purify the activity of the mind even more so. So more stability, more calm. And the purification of our mind allows the mind to do the more subtle work of purifying the view. So it's an engine that repeats. That's the linear even though it's cyclical, <clears throat> it's linear in the sense of one thing leads to the other. But another way of thinking about it is more holographic, you know, that they're all whenever these elements of the path or these components of the path arise, then there's a taste of liberation, when they come up together. And Bhikkhu Bodhi uses the image of, you know, if you've ever looked at a metal cable, a steel cable, to how the strands, you know, are woven together. And it gives it a lot of strength. In the same way, when these factors or these elements or components of the path, we're living with a lot of integrity. The obsessive tendencies of mind are being skillfully related to, put aside skillfully. We're not hating the judging mind. We're just with a lot of love and a lot of wisdom. We're seeing, well, that's just the judging mind. And that's how we, you know, put water on that fire, cool that down. So we're working with the obsessive tendencies of the mind skillfully, working with the view, the views of the mind skillfully. And then there's something very powerful, very strong that arises, and we call it the path. And like I mentioned earlier in the talk, the path is liberating. That's how we know, that, in a sense, the path has come online, is it has a sense, you know, this... This is this will be this mind body will be the expression of the path where it's, it's not independent of the mind. It's like when the factors the components are up online active, then this is liberated. And when it's not, and then it's not liberated. It's tight. It's heavy. It's difficult. It's caught in fear. It's caught in greed. So this is Saida Upandita, this well-known Burmese teacher, now quite old, I think almost 90 or maybe even early 90s, one of the important teachers of a lot of a teacher for a lot of the Western teachers. <clears throat> and this is his book, uh, In This Very Life. And he's talking about walking meditation of all things. But I thought it would just a very practical ex- explanation how when we're just mindful how all the factors come together and just arise. So he says, when one is very mindful during a single lifting process, so it's not even walking, it's just lifting, you know, just that simple process of lifting your foot off of the ground. When one is very mindful during a single lifting process, that is to say, when the mind is with the movement, penetrating with mindfulness into the true nature of what is happening, at that moment, the path to liberation taught by the Buddha opens up. The Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, often known as the middle way or the middle path, consists of the eight factors of right view or understanding, right thought or aim, right speech, right action, right livelihood, <clears throat> right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. During any moment of strong mindfulness, five of the eight Path factors come alive in consciousness. There is right effort. There is mindfulness. There is one pointedness or concentration. There is right aim. That's how he translates right thought or right resolve, the second part of the path. There is right aim. And as we begin to have insight into the true nature of the phenomena, right view also arises. And during a moment when these five factors of the Eightfold Path are present, consciousness completely free from any sort. um, And during a moment when these five factors of the Eightfold Path are present, consciousness is completely free from any sort of defilement. That's what I meant about that taste of liberation. As we make use of that purified consciousness to penetrate into the true nature of what is happening, we become free of the delusion or illusion of self. We see only bare phenomena coming and going. When insight gives us intuitive comprehension of the mechanism of cause and effect, how mind and matter are related to one another, we free ourselves of misconceptions about the nature of phenomena, that I'm doing the walking. And this is not a thought. This is an experience. The experience of I'm doing the walking disappears. And what arises in its place is that Walking is happening. Nature is walking. Or not self is walking. The whole the whole of it, which I'm using the word nature to represent, the whole of it is walking. There isn't a one, me, walking. That's our normal perception when wrong view, when the path factors aren't there. So it's a different experience. Some of you might have had this in walking meditation. In moments at least where you're walking, And there's a real sense, I'm walking, you know, and I'm bored or I'm not bored or I'm happy walking or I'm not happy walking. But anyway, when the factors come together, the factors of the practice come together and the mindfulness is strong and all the other important aspects of the path are there, then that sense of me walking goes away. And there's the liberation. The mind is liberated from the idea that I'm walking. You're still walking, but there's no... Thought with identification that I'm walking. That's what we're liberated from. That's what the mind is liberated from. This is just Saito Upandita's way of talking about that. So just to read a couple more sentences here. We see only bare phenomena coming and going. When insight gives us intuitive comprehension of the mechanisms of cause and effect, how mind and matter are related to one another, we free ourselves of misconceptions about the nature of phenomena. Seeing that each object lasts only for a moment, we free ourselves of the illusion of permanence, the illusion of continuity. As we understand the impermanence and its underlying unsatisfactoriness, we are freed from the illusion that our mind and body are not suffering. This direct scene of impersonality brings freedom from pride and conceit, as well as the freedom from wrong view. That we have been that we have an abiding self. When we carefully observe the lifting process, we see mind and body as unsatisfactory. Now that's hard to understand because I'm talking about this being liberating, and then you hear this where we're seeing that the mind and body are unsatisfactory. Might be better translation here seeing the mind and body as limited, as not a source for happiness. This is what I meant about, you know, I like to quote Ajahn Chahs where he talks about the reality of non-grasping, waking up to the reality of non-grasping. This comes when you see the unsatisfactory or limited nature of what the mind is in the habit of clinging to. When it sees the limited nature of the body-mind experience, it stops grasping. So the insight into unsatisfactoriness or dukkha is what allows for the non-grasping. It's not a bad experience. It's a liberating experience. I'll just to reread that last sentence. When we carefully observe the lifting process, we see mind and body as unsatisfactory, and so we are freed from craving. These three states of mind, conceit, wrong view, and craving, are called the perpetuating dhammas. You know, the perpetuating elements of experience. They help to perpetuate existence in samsara, the cycles of craving and suffering, which is caused by ignorance of ultimate truth, the underlying truth. Careful attention in walking meditation shatters the perpetuating dhammas, bringing us closer to freedom. So hopefully we'll never relate to walking practice like we used to, right? Because If we can imagine, just hold out the possibility that lifting is more than just lifting. (laughs) But the whole uh, path of freedom can manifest in any moment, of course. You know, lifting is just an example. But this moment or the next moment or any moment of our life could be a moment for the factors to come together, the, the path to come together. So remember, you know, we'll have a course on the uh, the Four Noble Truths. There is dukkha, right? Otherwise, we as a human being would not be interested in being a spiritual practitioner. There is dukkha. It's relevant. That's the first, that's an insight. Like, as a human being, it's not okay. So I'm a seeker. I'm no longer just somebody getting by someone... Who imagines that he's content or that it's okay enough? But I sense that not only is this life, uh, the heart, uneasy, but I sense that it's worthy of investigation. The uneasiness of my life, the uneasiness, the insecurity in my heart is worthy of investigation, which leads to the second insight, the second noble truth there's a cause. So we're locating the uneasiness here. It's not because my wife doesn't love me like I want her to love me, or my body isn't like I want it to be, or my situation in life isn't how I want it to be. I'm, I'm realizing it's an awakening that the uneasiness is something that's being constructed, put together here my mind. And realizing cessation, like when that activity of stressing ceases, then the mind realizes, oh, whatever this uneasiness is, it comes and it goes. In any moment that the heart's not constructing or generating stress, then the natural state of liberation is there. And in moments of liberation, in moments of the heart, free of stress, the path comes clear, right? Because the path is synonymous with liberation. The path is, uh, you know, I'm not talking about the articulation of the path now, but the experience of the path is the experience of the heart sustaining the liberation, sustaining non-clinging. Abiding in the reality of non-grasping. The heart, the mind, abiding in the reality of non-grasping. So that articulation, then, you know, we're, we're taking it up as a study to begin to have confidence that it's available. It's important, you know, this... <coughs> it, excuse me. It's... a surprisingly maybe, for some of you, big deal in most schools of Buddhism. This confidence, now often traditionally they they put it in terms of the historic Buddha, like having confidence in the liberation of the Buddha or later traditions that have more of a guru-disciple thing going, like in Tibetan Buddhism, for example. It's like faith in the enlightenment and the freedom of your teacher. Your guru, but in Theravada Buddhism, and this, uh, you know, insight meditation, vipassana practice comes out of Theravada Buddhism, and the, you know, one of the elements of this path or this lineage is using the historic person as the place we sort of focus as our teacher, and the teachings are these recorded teachings in the Pali Canon. And so we have these teachings, we have this, and we have to, you know, if we're going to investigate, it's because we sense, or at least we're willing to withhold judgment, that freedom is possible. Somebody did this, and what they did, we can do. That this is available. Because if we don't have at least some sense that it's available, why would we do this difficult practice? It's not easy to overcome the habits of mind, you know, to be greedy, to be fearful, to be controlling and impatient, to sort of use distraction to manage the discomfort of life. These are very deep habits. So next week we'll go right into um, right speech because there's obviously there's so much good work to do together in community and your own practice around right speech, right action, right livelihood. So we want to give ourselves at least five weeks to dig in. And we'll spend more time on right view, right intention, and other courses like we did this winter. It was a lot on the wisdom end of the spectrum. So we'll spend most of the time on the sila side, the in, side of integrity or ethical conduct. But we have about 10 minutes left. Do people have any comments from your practice about just this review of right intention and wisdom? Yeah, Carrie. Yeah, I wanted to, over this week I was trying to think about what I had about. I wanted to thought, but I think I had a hard time. Why don't you wait for a second? Caleb, would you shut the fan off, the top switch? Thanks. I guess I time, I because Yeah, I think that's that sounds right to me. That view is the sort of governing or underlying principle of what is realized when the mind is in a deep, quiet balance. And you know, ultimately, right view is really not clinging to any view, or that culture. Like I like that image you use. Like, right view is the culture of the ancient city that the Buddha discovered. So, what is the governing principle of that culture? Well, you could say not resisting the movement of all things. And, uh, but you see that from the mundane point of view, that might seem like we're saying, well, just let things, let it all hang out. You know, just let things, you know, when you're angry, it's okay. Just express yourself. And when you're lustful, just express yourself. And don't be uptight about things. And But see, that's not the same as uh, this right view. Because the right view is... Uh, is the mind not being dependent, realizing the mind's independence. And so that, that means the mind isn't afraid to do anything, including resisting habits. So we have to be a little careful with words like letting go or letting be in terms of using it as synonymous with right view. Even even the phrase I like from Ajahn Chah, the reality of non-grasping. You know, every description of right view is going to be limited. Or one that I mentioned just a moment ago. You know, right view is, you know, not clinging to any view, or right view is no view. You know, I mean, it's a little bit more obscure talking about it that way. But the mind not being reliant on a governing principle. Right, So that means, like initially, on a mundane level, that's what right view is. It's like we replace whatever governing principle we have as our main view, and we start working with karma, like how I am in the moment matters. How how I'm thinking, what I'm saying, what I'm doing, it's setting things in motion. So I want to be mindful of what is being set in motion, and is it skillful or unskillful. So that's on a mundane level where we're holding and using the view that intentions matter and operating with that. Thanks for bringing that up. Did you have more to say? Um, I think Bhikkhu Bodhi's opening chapters are quite good. The whole book, little book, is quite good. So I recommend that people either use it, read it on your computer screen, or print it out. It's not that long. Um, I don't have my copy here. Seventy pages, you. Yeah, and you can order it too. There's plenty of places online. You can just order it. Um, of course, you have to pay a little for it, but you can get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and and ultimately, you know, it's about it's a practice of freedom. So we're. We want to be creative in how we um, sort of find how freedom works. Like, where is freedom? Is it in getting the list totally together and being really disciplined about it? Is it about being afraid of having lists? Where is the freedom? You know, and so medicine is different for each of us. So you putting the list aside, maybe it wasn't so much about not looking at your to-do list as as it was about um, not living inside of the idea that I'm the person who has to, you know, I'm the person who will be fundamentally damaged if I don't get something done, or if I don't remember what's most important. You know, that conception might be a, a, a two ton weight that we carry around. So the act of putting the to do list aside. Was just the the symbol of dropping that grasping, that particular place where the mind tends to grasp. Being the person who can't miss, you know, can't make a mistake, can't leave something undone that needs to be done. Thanks for sharing that, Kay. Couple minutes, time for one more person. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, yeah. there's a nice way to think about them. So just to put them, uh, you need wisdom even to do the sila, but I'll start with sila. Sila is the Pali word for ethical conduct or integrity. And so sila is that we're waking up, we're using mindfulness to wake up to the quality of our relationships, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to our family, the communities we're involved in, to the objects of our experience. How do we relate? We're waking up to that because we see the harm that our habits of mind create for ourselves and for others. So it's really on this level of directly seeing the harm that gets set in motion because of how we relate and just realizing how easy it is to be To be unseen, to be unaware of the consequences of how we're relating. So we're waking up, and the more to the degree we wake up, we experience harmony. So that's the area of right speech, right action, right livelihood. And you can call it integrity or ethical conduct, and realizing in moments and then more and more in life, more harmony, the happiness of harmony, when this. Is more infused with awareness, mindful, wise awareness. And then the other one is looking at the obsessive qualities of the mind. So now it's not so much how the mind is relating to external things, but how's the mind behaving? Like within our mind, or within our heart, we have a, a culture too. <laughs> That's just like we're part of a community out here. There's this whole little civilization going on in here, too. And how, how's that? So now we're being mindful of the inner workings, the inner play of the mind. And is it a happy place or an unhappy place? And we're learning to, you know, just work with the hindrances and the obsessive tendencies of the mind, and we're learning how to create an inner harmony, which we call happiness, you know, the happiness of tranquility, the mind that's not agitated, not disturbed. And so we, we're putting down the obsessive tendencies and we're realizing. A happy mind, a mind that's not disturbed. And that's just by bringing mindfulness to the mind, the qualities of mind. And then that that settles the mind down even more, of course, that tranquility of the mind not being agitated. And that allows us to do even more subtle work, which is to be mindful of the view. Now, the view is also in the mind, but it's a more subtle aspect of the mind, more subtle than the, the particular qualities that are active in any moment, is the underlying view that almost always we're unconscious of. It's operating, whatever view we have right now is operating, and affecting who we are, how we are in the moment, on all levels, but mostly we're unaware of it. But when the mind is really tranquil, the particular lens or view becomes more apparent, and we're purifying that. So in sila, in ethical conduct, we're purifying our actions in the world. In terms of samadhi, the second category, we're purifying the tendencies of the mind, the qualities of the mind. And with wisdom, we're purifying the view, which leads to the peace of non-clinging. So the happiness of working on the outer world is the peace of harmony. The happiness of being mindful of the qualities of mind is the happiness of tranquility. And when we purify our view, we realize the happiness of peace. The happiness of non-clinging. So those are the three parts. It's just easier to remember than the eight. Ethical conduct, samadhi, or just the quality of the mind, the steadiness of the mind, and wisdom, or view. It's a couple minutes after nine, so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. In a sense of this heart, this mind somehow under the influence or under the guidance drawn into the path, hooked, hooked maybe by the experience of freedom, the possibility of freedom, our own intuition or direct experience of freedom. We're letting the path take over, living a life that allows this path to manifest. So may this be so. Many things to announce. I'll do it quickly. Um, our good, good friend, longtime leader and teacher here at the center, Craig uh, Vollmer has been in the hospital. Just he's been getting serious chemo for a while as, after his uh, pancreatic cancer came back. And I think I just got a brief email from Lee Rosenberg that uh, his system just crashed. I'm not sure how serious it is, but just keep him in mind, those of you who know him. Um, Bob Sang is he here? Is Bob here tonight? A long-time Buddhist studies person. He's in this course, but just not here tonight. There's a new article that is out... Um, Some people in the community wrote articles about all the different ways people are doing volunteer work or engaged in supporting the community. And the one that's out for this month is about Bob's work, so you can take a look at it. And we'll have some printed copies you can take home, but there's one posted out there you can take a look at if you'd like. Michelle is leaving soon, and she's still looking for some people to take the cats that she has so she can go explore monastic life. Take a look at the poster or talk to Michelle if you're interested. And uh, Caleb and Michelle are organizing the audio talks for the community. Kevin's jumped in, is going to help out. But if you'd like to help out with the audio recording or processing, check in with Michelle or Caleb in the back of the room. He used to sit there. Where is he sitting? Oh, there he is. (laughs) We're going to do the Refuges and Precepts this Sunday morning at 1030 and then followed by the community potluck, and then followed by the work day, where we're going to be working on some of the woodwork and some of the other maintenance projects in the building. So if you'd like to dig into the building for a couple hours on Sunday afternoon, please join us. And Carol Ann is going to be leaving in a few weeks or a week. Is she here now? Yeah. It's been so nice having her here for the last six months or so. long. Yeah, but she's going back to Nashville, so we want to say goodbye. Are you going to be here next Monday? One more week? Okay. And then uh, Carol Ann has been organizing the retreat equipment down in the basement um, after each of the residential retreats. If you'd like to take on that responsibility, so four or five times a year, when the bins with all the cooking and other stuff come back, getting it all organized so it's all ready to go for the next residential retreat, you can just let the office know and we'll hook you up with Lee and some of the other people on the retreat committee and they'll get you organized. Any other announcements people have for the community? Really nice to be with everybody tonight. Have a good week. If you have a moment to take the folding chairs down, that would be great.